It's time to think differently about healthcare, but how do we keep up? The days of yesterday's medicine are long gone, and we're left trying to figure out where to go from here. With all the talk about politics and technology, it can be easy to forget that healthcare is still all about humans. And many of those humans have unbelievable stories to tell. Here, we leave the policy debates to the other guys and focus instead on the people and ideas that are changing the way we address our health. It's time to navigate the new landscape of healthcare together and hear some amazing stories along the way. Ready for a breath of fresh air? It's time for your Paradigm Shift. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare, and thank you for listening. I'm Michael Roberts here today with my co-hosts, Scott Zeitzer and Jared Johnson. On today's episode, we're speaking with Danny Fell. He's a senior strategist at Optum. Danny, thank you so much for making time and coming on the show today. Hey, thank you guys. I'm looking forward to the conversation. We are too. So let's dive right in. Optum, they recently completed a summary of, of several waves of research about consumer sentiment toward seeking medical treatment through all of this and how that sentiment has changed over the course of the pandemic. So I had the chance to read it before our show. This is definitely one of the most in-depth and updated reports that I've seen kind of through all of this. So let's just start at the beginning. You know, what do you think are some of the most important findings out of this research? First of all, I think the timing was a big factor in this. So we started the survey the 1st of May, and the idea was to set up a tracking survey, something that would be in the field pretty frequently. There's a lot of great research being done, other consulting firms, market research companies, big firms like Gallup. But we wanted to do something that A, was a little more in the moment, and two, was A, B, whatever, was a little more specific to actual healthcare utilization by consumers. You know, were they holding off on going in for healthcare services? So I I think that was part of it. And as that developed, as you probably saw from the research, we actually were able to track sort of in real time what was happening as the virus was moving from predominantly the Northeast down to other areas of the country. So I think that was one was sort of the timing, the framing of it. We're stepping back now and we're going to come back in the market with another version of it. But understanding those regional differences in particular in the last few weeks that we did the the surveying, I think was a big takeaway. The other was that the high percentage of consumers overall that still were telling us they were hesitant or likely to postpone care, they were hesitant to go back, were likely to postpone care. And even in some certain areas, like all throughout the research, about one out of five, about 20% said they wouldn't go to the ER even if they were having life-threatening symptoms of a heart attack or something. So I think those are some of the top line takeaways that were big for me. It's pretty amazing. I, you know, I remember having some conversations with folks like right as, as all the pandemic stuff was getting started and everybody was just kind of scared to go to the hospital. But to still see that high a number of people saying like in a legitimate, pure emergency situation, you're still not thinking about going to the hospitals. Like, oh my goodness, that's huge. That really does kind of lead into like, we, you know, these results are changing pretty substantially over time. How is it that like, you know, we end up doing a lot of work with, with medical practices specifically. So how can medical practices really keep their ear to how these sentiments are changing? How, how can they keep up with all of that? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts on that. One is our survey was national, right? We, we were surveying about 700 consumers nationwide, pretty reflective of the demographics of the country. And we could drill down 
regionally, and we could drill down a little bit into some demographic groups. But one of the things that we've been careful to say is, look, you should be doing similar research in your local market if you can. You know, if you can afford to do it formally and hire a research company, that's ideal. If you can't, you can be doing it informally. If you're a small, smaller healthcare organization or, or a physician practice, you could be doing sort of a ask the man on the street or ask patients coming in the door kind of thing, but have some kind of local sense of how it's impacting you. So that's one. I think the other is one of the positives that came out of the research was if you put every type of healthcare location or provider on a spectrum, the good good news is consumers were most positive, most comfortable going to a physician's office. Now, a lot of them told us that they still wanted to do that via telehealth or virtually, but that, that was at one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum was, was in the hospital or in the emergency room. That's where you saw the, the biggest number of consumers who said they just had second thoughts or, or might reschedule. So that's the good news. If you're talking about smaller providers or, or physician practices, it's probably a little easier. And I think the other thing that we've learned both from our research, but also we also did some other qualitative research along with this. One of the things we learned is that word of mouth is still very powerful in healthcare. So if consumers hear from other neighbors, patients, friends, you know, hey, I went to the doctor's office and this was the procedure they followed. You know, I sat in the car, they walked me in, I had a mask. When they hear that, then I think it'll it alleviates a lot of concerns. And so I think that's really positive too. And so getting that message out, relying on, you know, communicating that and getting patients to share that with other patients or other people in the community, I think is really important. Yeah. You know, Danny, it's interesting you bring that up. I talk to a lot of practices on a regular basis and I literally beg them like, please put very detailed information on what you're doing regarding COVID on your website. Have a separate page for that. Google seems to be linking to that. The patients are nervous about it and they want to go. And and uh, I know that all of them are talking about telehealth, like we're going to go do more telehealth. Are you seeing that they're embracing that uh, fairly well, the option of telehealth now that it seems that it's getting reimbursed uh, correctly? Yeah. So when you say they, are you referring to the providers or the patients? I'm go- let's go with both. Let's, st- let's start with the providers first. Like, are the providers, now that they seem to be getting paid appropriately for telehealth, do they seem to be embracing it more, the providers? I think so. At least at the hospital level, the, the systems that we work with seem to have jumped in pretty, pretty hot and heavy. You know, it almost became a little bit of a badge of honor. You know, it, the COVID, the run-up to what's been going on in the last few months, you know, sort of health systems touting we did, you know, 50 before COVID and now we're doing 5,000. So I think there was both a practical, yeah, we're doing this, we're flipping the switch. And I think there were people who were also sort of using it as a, you know, look what we're doing, you know, celebrate kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it is the, the right thing to do. And then you had some folks that were way on the on the really cool end of the spectrum. So if you've looked at some of the stuff that people like Atrium Health in Charlotte, you know, with an actual virtual hospital that they leaned up with two virtual floors to treat COVID patients. And now they're talking about, you know, beyond COVID, actually keeping that virtual hospital in play. Those were some really cool things. At the smaller provider level, I think it's been tougher, right? You know, to find the right solution, to lean that up from a scheduling standpoint, I'm sure with smaller physician groups, offices that might be logistically a little harder to do. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. It's, it's like habit. 
you know, the power of habit can be positive and negative. When I talk to some providers, some good friends of mine, I personally have found that the smaller groups, when they just get together, you know, three, four guys are like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And they're better, you know, at moving forward. It's the ones that are like 12 in a group where they, you couldn't get them to agree on, you know, what soda to have in the refrigerator before COVID, getting them to agree on what telehealth option and how to employ it. I can only imagine. I think that's been a, an interesting conversation regarding telehealth. How, how have you seen the patients? Do they seem to be embracing telehealth? Do they want it? Yeah. So our data suggests that there's some interesting takeaways from it from a telehealth standpoint. So if you look at it from a high level, a high number of consumers, like 60, 65% tell us, I would go to, the, to my physician's office today and you know, if the option were available, I would do telehealth. And we even see that number with some of the older demographics as well. So it, even among those who are 65 or older, who you would think would be maybe less inclined or a little more reserved, we, we see pretty high numbers saying that they would consider telehealth or telemedicine. Now, obviously, I think that trails off when you get into to some of the you know, 70, 80-year-old age range. Sure. And then we saw it pretty strong in the middle age range. And I suspect, but it falls off a little bit in some of the younger groups. And I suspect that might be partly not that the younger groups are opposed to it. They're just not really oriented to healthcare. And by younger groups, I'm saying like 18 to 25 or something. It's just they don't really think about healthcare in general. And so they don't really spend a lot of time worrying about it. Whereas somebody in our age group with kids, right? They are, and they're very predisposed to it. So that was where we saw, you, you almost see a, kind of a bell curve, if you will, but not trailing off on the older side of it, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I was thinking about consumers in emergency care. I recently actually had a biking accident, fractured my wrist, yay, needed surgery. I'm bleeding, standing, and all I'm thinking about isn't that I'm bleeding or that I think my wrist is fractured, is that, oh no, I need to go to an ER and how do I avoid that, right? I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's insane, but that's what I'm thinking about. And I actually ended up going to an urgent care rather than an emergency room because I thought, hey man, I might have a better shot of avoiding COVID. And then when I picked my particular orthopedic surgeon, one of the, my first questions was, do you have an ambulatory surgical center where you're going to do the surgery? Are you seeing those kind of very specific questions about, about how they're managing COVID, like, you know, ICUs for COVID only or hospitals, like where they have multiple hospital locations where they're trying to say, yeah, don't worry, we're, we're doing a lot of testing. No COVID patient is allowed to be here. You know, that kind of thing. A couple of thoughts. I should have elaborated a little bit when I was talking about the physician versus hospital. It is that continuum, right? So people seem to be most comfortable, confident in my physician practice followed by a freestanding surgical center or an outpatient center or an urgent care and then inpatient and big hospital is kind of what they want to avoid. Obviously, a lot of this is the dynamics of, of how it's unfolded, right? So in the Northeast, we saw really high concern you know, versus places like where I am in the South initially. And then that curve kind of reversed as we get later in the summer and, and the virus picked up across the South and, and in the West. So what was happening regionally was one impact. What people were hearing and reading in the media about their local hospital and how many cases. And I think hospitals had to pivot a little bit too, right? So there was the initial, we're shut down, we're not actually seeing any patients. So they were more or less saying, hey, the whole hospital is open for COVID. 
And then as they reopened, what they had to do was re-message to say, okay, we've got a dedicated area for COVID or we've got a wing that's focused on COVID, but you're not going to be near that, right? So I think the takeaway for me wasn't so much the logistics. It was throughout this whole pandemic, we have really sent consumers a lot of mixed messages. You know, in the beginning, it was don't wear a mask because we need masks and we're running out. Then it was wear a mask, but some people don't want to wear a mask. And then it was, you know, you're not coming into the hospital because we're treating COVID, but now we want you back. So I'm not saying anybody was at fault, but I think in when you step back and you think from a public health and from a marketing communications, which all of us are marketers, we really did a disservice to consumers. We sent a lot of mixed messages. We still are to a certain degree. And I predict there's going to be another quote-unquote wave when we get into an actual vaccine of mixed messages. So I think it's been hard on consumers. And I think that's why we see confusion and overly concern maybe where they don't need to be. And, and frankly, just confusion. Like what is open? What's not open? What door do I go to? Right. What's safe? What's not? If, if you were running a specialty practice, like how would you be engaging with patients right now? Yeah, so I should give a shout out to our sister company organization, the Advisory Board, Advisory Board Research, took some of the work that we're doing from this tracking survey, and they started going deeper into what kind of messages do consumers want to hear, what what will make them feel comfortable, safe in returning. And to your point earlier, it is. There's a certain percentage of the population it wants very detailed information. And I should caveat this by saying one of the things that our team developed, we work a lot in predictive modeling for consumers. And one of the models we developed was called the COVID or is called the COVID concern index. So what we were essentially trying to do was segment consumers in a market based on how likely they are to be fearful or hesitant to return. So I want to be careful to say all consumers aren't the same, right? We're marketers. We know to segment. There are a couple of groups of consumers we call the fearless first, they're less concerned. They don't want to be bombarded with kind of safety messaging. The other end of the spectrum, the, the what we call laggards going last and, and the hesitant to return, those consumers want a lot of detailed information. They want you to reach out to them about the procedure. They want to be contacted the day of. They're coming in. They want somebody to walk them through. They want to see a video you know, that shows them what you're doing differently. They want to know that you're doing something differently than you normally would do in a practice, right? Because they assume practices practice good you know, hygiene, but you're going above and beyond now what's different. That group, I think, email has been pretty common if you have a patient database with email, some phone calls. I actually saw some research from uh, Klein Group, Rob Klein's team, that I think it was 60 or 70% of consumers said when it comes to... COVID information, they wanted to talk to somebody on the phone. So a pretty high percentage of consumers would prefer to actually have a phone call versus just get an email or go to a website. So I think that's important too, to the extent you can do that as a small practice or a care provider. If you can do that personal reach outreach, I think that's important. Yeah, that's a, actually a very uh, good takeaway You know, for the smaller practices where they perhaps could be a little bit more nimble and essentially just reach out to those specific patients, especially, you know, you think about like an endocrinologist, say that sees a lot of diabetic patients and they're afraid to come back in and they know, you know, the, the, the provider knows you, you got to come back in, man. I mean, this is, 
this is not a disease that takes a break because of COVID. Yeah, so I'll tell you a funny anecdotal story. So, so pretty early on, my dentist started reaching out to me. The first thing I got was like a link to a survey. And the survey was how likely would you to be to come back if we did these things? And I thought, well, that's pretty innovative. And then I got some phone calls about, you know, you're due for your cleaning, you're due for your whatever. Then I started getting text messages. And so the, the <laughs> ironic thing was, I wasn't not going because of COVID. The fact is they had switched insurance and they didn't take my insurance anymore. And I just hadn't come up with a better plan. And so, <laughs> so at the end of the day, there are still some things that kind of drive people's, you know, where they go for healthcare. And, and we can't like overlook that, but I do give them credit. I thought as a small dentist office, they did a really pretty good job of reaching out personally. And I think I think that goes a long ways for, for consumers. That's interesting you mentioned that. You are not the first actually for me to hear recently of an example like that from somebody outside maybe a hospital or larger group setting, like larger practice setting. And maybe it is because they, they are able to focus if it's somebody with just one specialty going on, or if it's just somebody who, who's already got that set up in the background. I think even when you were talking about, yeah, the necessity of just having the email database, of having a simple way to engage patients, whether it is email or texting or phone call or whatever. If you didn't have that in place already, then you're going to have to go back and you're experiencing this, this growing pain right now of having to put the system in place, the, the technology in place, some kind of platform to be able to do that basic engagement. And you might see how, how important it had been already to have that connected with the patient's personalized health information, wherever it came from. There are so many different ways to configure that. And there's a lot of time that, that it takes to, to set it up. And so I do see, see that those things are related. They're connected. The ability for some of those who already had a system in place to be one of the first to reach out and do, like you said, uh, send out that first piece from your dentist you know, about you know, what would it take for you to come back, that, that kind of thing. So I think it's just realizing you know, partially that there is that spectrum and that the more things were in place before COVID, those were likely the ones who were easier to have the ability to go right back out and start engaging with patients digitally a little bit more in the first place. And so that kind of brings me to this other part of everything you've been sharing, that the data itself, it feels pretty clear, you know, that the sense of being able to go back to the data itself, that the research uh, this group has done, that you guys have been able to put together, that's what's driving so many different decisions. And when everyone's asking right now, how do we know? How do we know when to do that thing? How do we know how often to reach back out? When do we do this? What do we say? How do we show? All the questions that I think the majority of providers have been asking for several months now, all those things can be answered in one way or another by some kind of data. So whether it is first-party data that a practice or a provider or a hospital is keeping already, and they just they know how to find it, or they've got it, but they don't know where to find it, or they've got something like the research that, that your team has put together. I think it's, it all just reiterates the fact of, of data being the, the linchpin to all of this. So my question would be, how does the data itself help care brands to understand how to engage consumers? Yeah, I think the big takeaway, Jared, from that is organizations, healthcare is maybe lagging a little bit as an industry need to be more data-driven in their decision-making. And so, so let me kind of put this in context. One of the things that a lot of hospitals are doing right now that I don't think is necessarily working is they're running these broad, we're open, we're safe, you can come back kind of ads. There's a nurse with a mask and it's a generic headline. And 
to me, there's nothing wrong with keeping your name out there. I'm a branding guy by training and career. I think brand is important. But running that kind of generic, we're clean, we're safe, you can come back in, I don't think is the answer. I think there's ways to use the data, to your point, to be a lot more precise, to be a lot more targeted. As I said earlier, you can't, A, assume all consumers are fearful because they're not. There are certain segments, demographically, psychographically, that are more concerned than others. There are high-risk groups, right? So whether it's age or chronic illness, or I'll give you one from our research. One of the, the really stunning numbers that jumps out of our research is about 9% of the survey respondents in our survey report as being unemployed, but seeking employment, right? So these aren't stay-at-home parents or retirees. That's a different category. These are people who are actively seeking work, but they're currently unemployed. 50% of those consumers said they wouldn't go to the ER even if they were having life-threatening illnesses. A high percentage so they wouldn't go to a physician's office just because they're not in a position to do it. So there are segments of the population in a community or in a, in a market that I think you can use the data to really go after, educate, address their concerns, whether it's a psychographic segmentation issue or it's a high-risk you know, audience that you're going after. Or conversely, if you're truly trying to drive marketing volume and replace lost revenue, then go after the fearless first. Find the consumers who are ready to come back that aren't fearful, that you're not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince, and get those people before your competitor does, right? So I think to your point, there's lots of ways to use data, both kind of the anecdotal trending type research, as well as actual data from your organization or your local market that can help you be much more precise. And the the important thing for that is marketing is going to be under more and more pressure to cut budgets. People aren't going to want to spend tons of money going forward on broad-based marketing. They're going to want to say, you know, what's the return on investment for this? What's the real value for this? And I think that's where data can help answer that question or at least provide some some meaningful, you know, justification for what you're going to do. I really like that thought because it's it's the precision involved, right? And it's I like how you keep coming back to the thought of segments that not all consumers are thinking or feeling the same right now. And there are the regional differences. There are the psychographic differences. I almost said demographic differences, but I'm, see, I'm learning, I'm learning here too, you know, about how, how more important it is to zero in on the psychographics. How do you feel about things? How do you, how do you behave versus trying to lump everyone in a certain age group, you know, or region into the same types of behavior? Because that's what we're seeing with more data being presented as well, is that that's very much not the case. We're generalizing a lot when we're saying, hey, everyone in, in a certain region is going to act the same. And so I, I think it's, it's great. It's, it's, this is the foundation. This is how a lot of decisions should be made. And if they're not being made yet, then let's take some strides. Let's make some, some first steps along this path and, and figure out how to start using data a little bit more and recognize that it is going to keep changing. I think you're right in terms of we don't know exactly what's going to be happening when when the next wave comes, when when a vaccine comes, or even before then. Things are going to keep changing with consumer sentiment. And so I appreciate bringing all these different pieces to the table because it's helping us all just understand how better to, to engage with patients at the end of the day. It extends to things like the vaccine, right? We don't exactly know, well, not even exactly, we don't know what the timetable for it is. But There's some consumer research out there that suggests only about 40% of people right now said they would definitely get it 
20% said they wouldn't get it. And maybe another 30% are saying they're not sure. So that could have you know, profound in, impact on the timing of, of everything and, and getting to some type of you know, herd immunity and, and what happens there. I think a few months ago, the thinking was, okay, we'll just get through this really tough spring summer and then we'll be figuring out how to get back to business as usual in the fall. The reality is we're not back there and I doubt we'll be back there before the end of the year. So now people are having to think in a much more extended, okay, what am I going to do over the next six months? You know, okay, I'm at 90% capacity, but is that because I'm I'm getting the people that were backlogged and all of a sudden that's going to fall off? I think that's a very real question that people are asking. And one of the ways to get at that is to understand, okay, of the patients coming in, what do we know about them? What can we learn about who's coming in and who's not coming in and how likely this volume will be to continue? Because you may be at 90 or 95% today at the beginning of September, but if you're not there in December or January, that could have profound impact on your bottom line. So, you know, using that data to kind of understand where are things going to be a few months from now or you know, next quarter, first quarter next year, I think could be, could be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Danny, where can people keep up with this kind of information if they wanted to follow Optum's research and where can they, they find that kind of information? Thanks for asking. Optum has, like a lot of companies, uh, right on our homepage, you can go to optum.com, right on the homepage, there's a link to a lot of the material that we have made available around COVID, the research, and we're not the only group within our organization. We're a very large health organization. A lot of different groups like the advisory board and others are doing research. There's some really cool, we have a partnership with an architecture group called Array. They were very early on putting out some tools. I want to call them calculators. That's probably not the right term, but mm -hmm. some planning tools to understand, you know, how many ICU beds do you need? Wow. So there's a lot that, that our organization has made available and, and folks can tap into whether you're an existing client or a partner or, or simply looking. We've been doing a lot of webinars educational things and, and you should be able to link to that material there as well where they can reach out to me personally if they just want a copy of the research or, or some help navigating you know different resources that we have i'm happy to to communicate with folks directly awesome. i danny i really appreciate it appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing all this data with us i think this is going to make a huge difference in how practices and hospitals and different groups should be thinking about marketing going forward. So that's very exciting. Guys, we're going to wrap today, but thanks so much, Danny. Guys, thank you for listening. Have a great week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare. This program is brought to you by P3 Inbound, marketing for ortho, spine, and neural practices. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.